We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land this podcast was produced and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the commitment and sacrifice of First Nations people in the preservation of country and culture. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome to Creative Responders in Conversation. I'm Skosha Mongovich from the Creative Recovery Network, and this is our monthly interview series where we hear from creative leaders, disaster management experts, artists and community members who are strengthening disaster planning through creativity. Today I'm speaking with Dr Margaret Morton. Margaret is the Executive Director of the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience, our national institute delivering a range of products and services on behalf of the federal government to support a disaster-resilient Australia. It's a great time to speak with Margaret as Ada is gearing up for their annual conference taking place in August. So I was excited to hear from her about the programs for this year's gathering, the first to be delivered under her tenure, and to talk about the ways she's working to enhance the inclusion of diverse voices and new platforms within the program, which include a dedicated focus on creative recovery for the first time. Prior to her role with Ada, Margaret worked in federal government across a range of social policy and program areas. Motivated by her own experiences during the 2003 Canberra fires and the 2009 Victorian bushfires, she embarked on a community-based research project exploring the key factors that contributed to disaster recovery and resilience. We'll hear more about that from Margaret shortly and how this led her to her current role with Ada and her commitment to building a collaborative approach to how we plan for and respond to disasters. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Margaret Morton. So welcome to Creative Responders, Margaret. Uh, I'll start by paying respects to the traditional owners, ancestors and elders, past and present, on the lands on which we're podcasting today. So I'm on Yagara Turbul country in Mianjin, Brisbane. Where are you joining me from today, Margaret? I'm joining from Wurundjeri country down here in Melbourne, and it's lovely to be here both with you and on this country. It's a beautiful sunny day, which is a bit of a change for us. Oh, I hear it's been uh, biting. Well, you live in Ballarat, don't you? So cold central. I do. (laughs) Yep, in Wuthering country. And it's even colder and Mm. rainier than anywhere else. But I still love it. Well, we're so pleased you can come onto the podcast, Margaret. I know it's, uh, uh, I've known you for some time and had the pleasure with working you most recently in your role as Executive Director of the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience, or ADA as we refer to it. I'm sure many of our listeners will be very familiar with the Institute, but for those who aren't, um, I thought it would be a great start to hear from you about the Institute and also a little bit about your journey in community-based work and research that led you to this role in uh, heading up the organisation. So for anyone not familiar with ADA, uh, the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience, we are Australia's national institute and we are in particular knowledge creators, curators, brokers, We have an entire set of handbooks that are focused on a number of issues related to disaster risk reduction and resilience. Uh, We produce a major incidents report every year. Um, We create companion documents and guides for people working with communities. So there's a lot of knowledge creation. We do that in a very collaborative way with people working in the field, 
with specialists and others. And by doing it in a collaborative way, there's a lot of ownership of the products we produce. But we don't stop there. We then use those products as a platform and we support a number of networks of people as they explore the issues in disaster risk reduction and resilience. We host a national conference every year. It's coming up quite soon. And we run webinars and other events and activities to help people learn from and share their experiences based on that knowledge that we've created, but also based on the lived experience of practitioners and of communities themselves. So we see ourselves as that core central knowledge repository and helping people work out how to utilise that knowledge. We have a knowledge hub on our website which is used extensively. I'm always amazed at the downloads and the evidence of people using our information. And we have all sorts of plans and hopes. Well, it's so necessary to have that centralised gathering point, isn't it? Because the hardest thing is there's so much to find and to have that centralised space is so useful, not, not only for researchers but for practitioners looking for connections or ideas or case studies or... Absolutely. And uh, we often describe ourselves as that step, that translator in between the research and the knowledge and how to actually put it into practice on the ground. And another metaphor I've been using of late is that we're a doorway into a whole lot of resources. So um, more and more people are coming to us saying, we'd like you to host our information and resources on the website. And I think that... um, having that central door where people know that if they open the door and look inside, they'll find all sorts of different bits of information and knowledge that can inform their practice. I think that's a really important, in fact, I get feedback all the time from our users, I don't like that word, but from practitioners about how useful that knowledge is. Mm, The miraculous library. (laughs) Mm. So you referred earlier that your background was in community-based work. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and how how it led to you to where you are now? Sure, happy to. And in fact, it's one of those things when we look back on our lives, I now see patterns that I didn't realise were happening at the time. So I'm forever grateful that I was born in a small country town and grew up on a farm in Western Victoria. I learned when I joined the public service many years later that I grew up under the poverty line. I had a great childhood, lots of outdoor, fresh food, ran around without shoes on most of the time. And I'm grateful for that beginning in the country. It gave me my first language, which is the language, forgive the flippancy, but pretty much of everyday Australians. And if I hadn't had that, I wouldn't be where I am now. Um, My first fire was when I was in my teens and It was in the 1970s, perhaps 1973, the local town, uh, Stratham in Victoria, was razed and there were lives lost. And uh, my first realisation of community, I think, that I remember anyway, is that the local newspaper, rural newspaper called The Stock and Land, took a photograph of my father um, feeding hay from our hay shed to someone else in the region's sheep, the wind changed and our home and our farm was not affected at all and others were, which is a common story. And the journalist asked my father for his name 
uh, to put under the photograph should it make the paper. And as a young kid, I was super impressed with my father's answer. And I have the article and I have the original photograph. Um, and it's been, I've had it ever since. And my father's answer went something like, my name doesn't matter, look around you. We're a community and we're here helping one another. And he said a few other things, but but he basically refused to give his name. And so that's what they printed under the photograph. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was my first, as I say, my first real awareness of community, the football club, all sorts of people came out to help one another. There were no payments for disaster support back then. I joke with people and say I'm 100 years old. There was no disaster scheme. There were no financial arrangements. People just helped each other get back up. Since then, I have worked in the public sector in Canberra, setting policies and running programs for the federal government. And then I reached the ripe old age of 50. And for anyone who's listening to this podcast, 50 is not too late to change your career. And I went to university again and did a PhD. And it's the people I interviewed for that PhD that changed my life. I went to four different emergency affected communities, fire, flood, cyclone, and then a community that had fire, flood, fire, or was it flood, fire, flood, one or the other, um, and interviewed 120 people and interviewed the heads of recovery in each of those cases and gathered information about what resilience means to them and what it looks like on the ground. And I carry some of those people with me today as I, I can clearly recall sitting on verandas And that's where my speaking rural Australian helped, not my speaking Canberra bureaucrat, but my speaking rural Australia. I had lots of fantastic conversations listening to people's stories of what resilience meant. And then I knew I could never go back to being a bureaucrat again and began to do a lot of community-based disaster resilience work in different communities across particularly Eastern Australia And then from there, I've worked in other organisations and and then the AIDA position became available. And I I have to say, um, credit to Amanda Leck, my predecessor, who rang me and told me that it was going to become available. And I realised I wanted this job very badly because of the, the ability to support the system and through the system to support Australian communities for a very long time into the future, which is what I'm hoping that we will do. So I have a pretty personal experience from a young age. I did protect my home in the Canberra bushfires and that gave me a real experience of what the middle of a crisis feels like. I recall it in a great deal more detail than the fires when I was a teenager. I think grass fires are quite a different experience to the fires Mm. that burned in Canberra. And I think the other fires that had the greatest effect on me personally were the Victorian fires on Black Saturday in 2009 perhaps being a Victorian by birth and perhaps because of how many children perished in those fires. Um, For Australians, 173 people is a lot of people. We're not used to that sort of number. Well, those fires were instrumental for so much change, weren't they? They were. So you mentioned that one of the major initiatives of AIDA each year is your annual conference. Yeah which is coming up at the end of August. So great time to be catching up with you to hear more about how it's all coming along together. And there's always uh, many interesting components to the conference program, but I was particularly pleased this year that Creative Recovery 
has been identified with its kind of own platform of work with a special session dedicated to it. Can you talk a little bit about the programming decisions to incorporate that and perhaps whether you see this as reflecting a shift in the sector over recent years as to the value of arts-based programs in disaster management? I think it does reflect that shift and I think it also reflects my arrival at the Institute. It was really interesting. I got here uh, in the nick of time. The theme for the conference was one of the first things that was being finalised after my arrival and we sat as a team and had uh, quite a, a, a few conversations about what we wanted the theme to be. And we decided we, we wanted to take a fresh approach, which is difficult doing a conference every year, but we wanted to take a fresh approach and identify a few themes that uh, would bring forward different voices, voices that aren't on every conference agenda I know that there was a bit of disappointment as people who have spoken at a number of ADA conferences before weren't chosen on this year's agenda and and aren't part of the program, and that's always difficult. We had over 800 abstracts submitted to this conference, this ADRC in 2023, and that's a huge number of abstracts to review uh, for effectively less than 30 time slots. Well, that in itself is interesting, isn't it? Because it is. in some ways the field of recovery, and that's kind of more the frame of reference comparatively to the bigger disaster management conference that sits around yours, is, uh, you know, has been really growing in the last, you know, five, ten years. And to see such an interest and also an evolution of how people are engaging in in uh, building better practice, it's that's pretty exciting to have 800. It's very exciting. Mm. And I think it's been, uh, w- which is reflected in our program, I think it's a shift more toward preparation and recovery, not, mm. not just to focus on the crisis itself and the response. It's a shift toward creativity. There are other elements on the program where there's some nature-based solutions that's made it onto this year's program for the first time. There's a shift to understanding the whole a little more. So um, there's a lot of conversation happening now about what's in the system, what's the systemic approach to disaster risk reduction and to building resilience. And there's the interest, I think, reflects a desire to understand the entire system that surrounds an emergency event. It's not just lights and sirens, although I do pay uh, express gratitude to the response agencies who do that really important work. But we've now got, you know, insurance and land planning, how to engage different groups across society that haven't perhaps been engaged before, how to build collaborative approaches to the challenges we face. So these are the kinds of issues we think are now emerging And we wanted to reflect it in this year's conference to engage in a new set of conversations. And interestingly, I get a bit nervous when I feel like I'm skiting, but I'm very (laughs) excited because we already have considerably more registrations at the conference than we've had before. Um, So it'll be showing every sign of being a larger group than last year or the year before that or the year before that. Mm. I get excited because that's an an interest and that demonstrates a passion and a growing group of people who want to learn and share. Yeah, and an understanding that we fit into a broader ecosystem, complex 
unto itself, but that we all have to pay roll. That's right. Which, you know, our um, country policies talk about that as well, but it's different when you think about it in practice. That's right. And, and because it's such a complex system that's affecting all of this work, it's even more important that we find ways to collaborate with uh, people who've been doing this work for a long time, but also with new players who are wanting to be more involved. We have to find really effective ways of collaborating well with a whole range of people now. Well, from a programming standpoint, you've also platformed Indigenous leadership within the disaster management system as another area that's deservedly gaining more prominence within these types of gatherings. Can you tell us about what people can expect from those sessions and some of the key influences that will be speaking at the conference? So it's very interesting. We've, We've intentionally expanded our connection to Indigenous Australians who are working in disaster resilience and risk reduction. In particular, we're also providing some support to, if I can give a bit of a plug, to Biami Williamson, who's an Indigenous uh, disaster risk reduction leader. He's conducting and leading a team, uh, conducting research into how First Nations have been, in fact, actively building resilience and dealing with disasters way before the rest of us. And we're helping him with an Indigenous summit that's happening on the Monday before the conference, hoping to showcase Indigenous ways of looking at these issues. I know that Biami will speak at that summit. Uh, We have a number of Indigenous speakers at the ADRC conference and also at the AFAC conference more broadly, trying to make sure we bring their perspectives into how we imagine resilience and how we work together in ways that really haven't occurred before. And I think it's it's high time that they did. Can you um, just explain AFAC, Margaret, because people may not know that analogy? Oh, thank you. AFAC is the broader conference that happens at the same time and location as the ADRC conference, and AFAC is the Foreign Emergency Services Council in Australia and New Zealand, and they too have more Indigenous speakers this year than they've ever had before. In fact, I think between the two conferences, we are sitting at something like 40% Indigenous speakers across the whole, which is sadly not usual and I think will make for a very, very interesting exchange. We've chosen to call some of our sessions in the ADRC conference, you know, things like people, place and power and have some Indigenous voices in that session. We really want to explore, and there are other sessions, I encourage people to look at our website, we really want to explore giving greater prominence to an Indigenous way of viewing the challenges that come from increasing frequent and intense disasters in this country. Yeah, such a necessary contribution. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, one of the great things about the ADA conference and other gatherings of this nature is the opportunity to be in the room with people from all these different parts of the disaster management ecosystem. And something we've been focusing a lot on Creative Recovery Network over the years, particularly in the area of disaster planning, is this collective responsibility, which you've already mentioned. So the current landscape of frequently occurring disasters requires new approaches and a kind of cross-sector collaboration as a key for tackling effectiveness, really, in the ways that we build, plan and respond. We've been very pleased to welcome you on to our National Task Force for Creative Recovery, um, which is a group that brings together representatives from a range of sectors uh, looking at a 
an engagement or, or building better practice, collective practice around risk reduction and response and recovery. Could you talk about this importance of collaboration a little more and why it's so essential that we move forward into this, you know, call it a new era or a new way of thinking about disaster planning, collective disaster planning? Sure. I'm delighted to be a part of the task force. I was very pleased to get that invitation. And it had me reflecting on a number of recent invitations in the last few years in particular. I remember speaking to a group of architects. They were town planners and architects designing a new suburb north of um, Melbourne in Victoria. And interestingly, I was asked to be their lunchtime speaker pretty much as a source of entertainment <laughs> and just a different Did you wear interesting. Party hat? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and, and so that appealed to me and I, I had a great time and talked to them about how physical place and places of connection, places where people could socialise together, art spaces, playgrounds, all sorts of things, how much of a difference those places make to a sense of community and how that plays out in the event of an emergency. And the session was very animated. I mean, I gave a brief introduction, but then the people who were present were really interested and they hadn't thought about it before. Mm. And that kind of reaction happens regularly. So um, particularly in the town planning space, I go... I hesitate to say this, but I may as well because we've got to address it. Um, I drive past particular areas on a daily basis. There's an aged care centre not far from where I live and it is in a hollow, quite low. The roofs are at the same height as the road I drive on when I drive past and I know that they're vulnerable to flooding because of where they're placed and we're putting aged care centres there. So there's a lot to be talked about around transport, education, town planning, building design, community design, all of which have a huge impact on the resilience in the long term of the people and the households and the community in those places. And until we engage with people who don't usually think about fire, flood, cyclone or storm, uh, we don't have those aha moments that I had with the architects and town planners where the penny drops and I see it drop and I know that's where Ada can continue to do really useful things and all of us working in this space because we've got to have that penny drop more often as people realise the consequence. Yeah, it's like having to put on a different kind of lens, isn't it? Like if we're thinking about sustainable futures and a lens around looking at ramifications of choices, then we have to be thinking yeah. more broadly than just the build or the structure or the economic kind of imperative that uh, drives particularly our construction industry. If we're not thinking with long-term care, then these kind of perhaps inefficient processes are continuing to be perpetrated because they're not seeing themselves within that broader picture. I agree. And uh, this is where the nature-based conversation also needs to come in because I think I'm hopeful that one of the things COVID has taught us and, and I'm hopeful we'll reflect more and more as, as it recedes into our past, I have my fingers crossed, is our connection to land and our, our need for fresh food because supply chains were disrupted so dreadfully during COVID and, of course, they are for every community after an emergency. 
But until we're all affected by it, a lot of people don't realise the difficulties that affected communities have in just obtaining the necessities of daily life. And in remote Australia, that's a daily occurrence to have difficulty obtaining necessities for daily life. So I'm hoping that the way we think about our place in the world will have shifted as we were all affected, most of us, by COVID, because that's the kind of thing that affects communities before and after emergencies as well. Mm. Well, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that when we think about crisis, it's a point of change, but if we don't if we're not part of that crisis, it's, it again doesn't ha- necessarily carry the weight. So it, it is about mm. how we think about educating communities, people, individuals, about thinking about, yeah, maybe the place in this kind of ecological situation that we're living now or perhaps their place within the community to see, see it in a different way. So even though it's not been impacting you, you can understand or have some empathy about the needs that sit beyond your localised communities so that you can see the ramifications of choices being made locally and how they impact more broadly than that. It's such a big culture shift that we need to engage with, isn't it? It is. And that brings me back to the value of the creative groups and people in our community because it's through stories and through plays and through probably through TV shows, um, through artworks, it's through music, it's through all of the creative elements of our lives that we share that experience in part at least. So I'm, I'm a big believer in the value of stories. Yeah, or get an insight into someone else's perspective. That's right. That's exactly right. What do you think from your experience uh, and the things that you've been learning that we most need to be focusing on, on building capability or the capacity of local communities to face these challenges ahead? Because we know they will be increasing. What, what do you see as the key areas we need to expand or improve or to build leadership and self-determination for communities to manage uh, sustainable futures? Mm. There is so much. I often talk about how important it is to invest in children and young people. And I'm old enough to remember when seatbelts were not worn in cars. And now, of course, we wear them all the time. I'm old enough to remember the slip, flop, slap uh, approach to sunscreen and sun protection. We somehow need to build into our everyday way of life an understanding that we live in a country that has all sorts of challenges and has regular fire, flood and cyclone and storm so that it becomes second nature. We also need to understand that the science is really clear. These events are becoming increasingly frequent and intense. There's no doubt about it. We've just had, I think it's the fourth hottest day on record globally as a global average ever. And we had them one day after the other, the four hottest of the last four days. It's essential that we get that. Mm. It's essential that we take that seriously, that we build it into our everyday life and that the organisations like ADA, like federal and state governments, like large NGOs, support the local efforts that are required if communities are to be well prepared and face the future. Local governments are really stretched And we need to work together. It goes back to your collaboration comments earlier. We absolutely need to work across different sectors in a united way, in a place-based way, in order to make sure we are well prepared for the futures that are faced. We know where these events will occur. 
we know the most likely locations in Australia. We need to act on that information. Well, and it's it is cultural change, isn't it? How do we how do we find spaces that we can be truthful together? That we we can't actually yeah. always do what we say our job <laughs> says we're going to do. You know that we do have to share resources and we do have to share skills and knowledges in a way that the system currently isn't necessarily set up to do in a in effectual way. And I think we have to respect and genuinely respect the various voices. You know, we have to learn from from and with First Nations people. We have to understand who lives in the places that are vulnerable to these events and work with those people. And we have to listen and we have to share the knowledge we have. Yeah, well, part of being able to contribute is to be educated about what we're contributing to. And that's one of the big gaps in terms of uh, community education, how do we work more effectively to ensure that we know what we need to know in order to contribute and to where, where that knowledge goes once once the conversations are established. Yeah. That's right. I think we also need to pay attention to current research because um, Daniel Aldrich has recently completed a period of time in Australia and he has excellent examples of the value of social capital and social connections and how they compare to some of the grey infrastructure or the physical built environment changes that people sometimes call for, we need to understand what's going to create the most resilience and invest in that. So there's a financial question here as well. Hmm. Well, and I, uh, he does highlight cultural infrastructure as being a core, well, but the potential of that being a core mitigator and preparedness space for people to come around. It is really another area of collaboration that's key um, for development, this area of research. I know that Ada has been broken with partners, not just with Daniel, but um, to kind of build research initiatives. How How do you think we can better embed collaboration around this research? Where do you see the value of this kind of collaboration for your organisation specifically, Ada, but also more broadly throughout the sector? It's really interesting Since I've been in this role, the Natural Hazards Research Australia team have been in in regular contact. Andrew Gissing and I get along very well and we're connecting with one another about research. Um, I've just sponsored and we've been delighted that it was successful, a concept that will be taken through the NHRA research process now for Indigenous disaster resilience. It's really important that the research include First Nations perspectives. So I'm thrilled that the project we sponsored, the project concept we sponsored has been successful. I'm also reaching out to other academic institutions. There are a number of universities now that uh, have either invited me or members of my team to be involved in planning days on expert advisory committees in exploring what the new challenges will be for research. And I'm very, very keen that we connect research to the work of ADA, but also connect researchers to one another. Because of the position we're in, sometimes we were just talking about this earlier today, sometimes we become aware of projects or approaches or research concepts that different people are developing, not realising that Others are also developing a similar concept and so we've taken on a role recently of starting to introduce people to one another 
so that if a project is being explored for research or on the ground in a community, that knowledge is shared with others who are doing similar work either in the same place or in different places. I think we need to build that collaboration in the research sector as well. And that's been our our efforts to do that has been very well received. So I think we'll do more of it. Mm. Yeah, so important. Otherwise, you're just doubling up, aren't you? And rewriting (laughs) over the top of each other. Yeah, there's so much happening and so much to do, isn't there? I think it's uh, always a challenge, like how do you keep a priority focus? I know that uh, for Creative Recovery Network, that's always a challenge, so much that we need to do to build capacity at a local level, but also to kind of educate and change perspectives around the role of culture and the arts. But, uh, you know, it's really important that we have friends in and with organisations such as yours to be able to help um, know what the kind of best pathways are to, to follow. And, I, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why the task force is such a good idea and why other collaborative approaches are so essential. It's such a complex area of work. We can't face the future effectively if we don't find a whole lot of different perspectives and mutual respect and then ways of working together to face the future because otherwise it's just too complex to face in piecemeal ways now. Hmm. But interesting, I think it's also there's a kind of relief. You know, if we think about the umbrella of climate and the climate experience or emergency, have the words you want to put around it, you know, it's it's the sort of umbrella under which everything now sits really, like everything will be... Yeah need to if it's not already engaging or being responsive to that. So the world of disaster management has a way to kind of be not only instrumental but kind of lead ways of how people can think about how we engage and care and drive sensibilities around our human relationships and how we are going to be able to survive and um, thrive together and how we're going to be thinking about the way that we sit uh, in partnership or in in the ecology of the world that is changing so very rapidly. That's right. I agree. So what an amazing place to be working. I know. I feel... Through the trajectory of your career, Margaret. I I have to pinch myself. I'm so aware of what a privilege it is to be here and what a pleasure. And and I feel like it's a match. I just, I feel like where I'm, I'm, I, I am where I'm supposed to be and, and, I know that in itself is a is a privilege to be able to say not many people get there. So mm, Great. Well, thanks, Margaret, for joining us. No worries. And all the best for the conference. It's just around the corner on August the 23rd and 24th here in Mingen, Brisbane. And we'll include the links in the show notes for the conference program and also to Ada for the listeners who'd like to know more or access the material on the Ada Knowledge Hub. And I use it a lot and encourage people to use it a lot. So it's such an amazing resource. Um, We look forward to seeing how things develop in the years under your leadership, Margaret, and uh, certainly engaging you at this year's conference. Thanks, Kosher. I appreciate all of that. I'm looking forward to seeing you and I do recommend to any listeners of the podcast that they do hop onto our website and have a look. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation, a podcast from the Creative Recovery Network. And a special thanks to Margaret for making the time to speak with me today. We'll link to Ada in the show notes if you'd like to find out more about their work and resources. 
If you're new to the podcast, you might also be interested in our documentary episodes, where we deep dive into communities and projects that are harnessing the arts to strengthen disaster management. They're all in the Creative Responders podcast feed, alongside our In Conversation episodes. If you scroll back, you'll find them all. You can also find our full archive at www.creativerecovery.net.au. You can listen to all of our past episodes and access transcripts and related case studies for each of these episodes. If you have any feedback on the podcast or know a creative responder you think we should know about, you can contact us at comms at creativerecovery.net.au. This podcast is produced by me and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Tiffany DeMack and the Creative Responders theme is composed by Margie Squire. We'll be back next month with another conversation. Thanks for listening.